Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited to be talking about the power of curiosity. We have Vika Victoria joining us on the show. Hello. Hello, lovely to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. We practice <laughs> we this. Practice the two-sided handshake. I love Vika's work. I'm super excited to host her. For those that don't know Vika's background, she's an award-winning storyteller, speaker, and relational wealth advisor. Her interactive lectures, The Power of Curiosity, Cultivating Relational Wealth, and Modern Masculinities, Tension Plus Release, have electrified audiences on global stages. For the past two years, Vika has been curating an underground men's dinner salon series around the world in cities like Berlin, Tel Aviv, Sydney, and New York City. The basis of her upcoming book, Brave New Men. For leaders and teams, Vika teaches relational wealth strategies and how to speak their stories with intrigue and impact. Vika also leads men's intensives on self-awareness, self-love, and self-expression individually and in group settings. And you can check out the links in the bio to bravenewmen.com, also her LinkedIn and her Instagram. All right, this is gonna be such a good episode, so pumped. Vika, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Mm. Really good question. Um, I am uncautiously optimistic. I think we live in one of the greatest times that has ever existed. And it's because we're aware of it. We have technology that connects that awareness in a not so silent fabric of genius. And so what I'm really excited about is the ability for all of us to tap into our individual genius and collective genius to solve the greatest problems in the world. And I know you and I have been lucky enough to talk to some of the people that are on at the helm of the ship doing this work. Um, so yeah, I'm feeling like we're taking responsibility in ways we've never taken responsibility before. Uh, you know, things that used to be really taboo like uh, yoga, meditation, veganism are now going totally mainstream. So I think overall as a society we're waking up and we're understanding that we have to do better if we want to survive. And what would you say are some of those key principles for the creative genius to be fully unleashed? To feel seen and safe, I think is a really big part of it. Um, to feel that your voice matters, so there's an element of significance, not to be confused with uh, an egoic importance, but simply understanding that every single person was born with a unique cross-section, a matrix of talents. And the way that you cultivate those talents and apply them to problems in the world is the worth that you're going to feel. Yeah, this is a very powerful intro. I love it. Let's, um, let's get into the journey. So born in Ukraine and then went to New York but spent most time in Georgia. Yes. And somehow ended up with brave new men. So teach us about this trajectory. <laughs> so this will be a fun short form moth. So I was born in the former Soviet Union to an incredible mother who really had a vision to get her kids out of the former Soviet Union. So we actually won the lottery and got out on the last ship um, in 1989, July of 89, as political asylum refugees. And so we came over to America with the assistance of a Jewish nonprofit called Nastya and um, ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, because my dad loved fishing. And so I spent my entire childhood in Atlanta, growing up, ballroom dancing, fishing on the Chattahoochee River, playing beach volleyball, like totally idyllic childhood. Uh, went to a private school, Atlanta International School, where I was really exposed to 
a diverse and international flavor. Like my best friends were Danish and French and um, spring break was in Val d'Isere. And this was stuff that like I, as a, an immigrant child, couldn't afford, but I was exposed to kids whose parents were international diplomats. And so I started to see that our world was much bigger than this little bubble of Russian Americans that I grew up in. And that totally shaped uh, me in those formative years. And so I graduated and went to Georgia Tech, found that Georgia Tech was a really fascinating place, um, started tutoring some of the athletes there, which would be really helpful in my later work. And so this thread of uh, talking to men started pretty early on. And then after Georgia Tech, the economy crashed. It was the worst time to get a job, and my father left the family. He decided to uh, pursue life with another woman. And so I found myself deeply depressed, rug pulled out from under my feet. The job that I had was on freeze, and so I bought a one-way ticket to Vietnam. Uh, and left 10 days later and I went backpacking alone for six months around Southeast Asia and it was the best therapy I could have asked for like I was orphanage hopping in Cambodia and when you have a three-year-old coming towards you with one leg that's all the therapy you need because you recognize in that moment perspective like yeah I don't have a dad my life feels pretty upside down but I know I'm gonna be okay because I have food and shelter and love and family. So I eventually, after six months, moved to New York City and my older sister was rocking it and advertising and she started taking me out and I had all these stories and they were like, you'd be really good at this. And so my sister actually helped me get into advertising and I worked as a digital ad sales executive for almost seven years and I loved it. It was, it was a totally curiosity-led life big on relationship building. My last business card read the Beyonce of digital media. So like I did it big and hard and loved it. And that was my MBA. Like I learned everything about business from, from doing that. And at the same time, I felt really deprived of cultivating a soul, my spirituality. And so I gave myself a goal that I would save up X amount of dollars. And then after seven years of squirreling away every commission check, never touched a single commission check for seven years, I had enough money to basically leave. And I gave away my stuff um, and I went backpacking around the world for 28 months. And in those 28 months, I decided to embark on a series of positive disruptive behaviors because I recognized that the only way I was going to come home to myself was to do the opposite of everything New York had conditioned me to do. Mm. So I stopped wearing makeup, I stopped wearing heels, I stopped wearing push-up bras, I stopped leading with sexuality when I met men, and I genuinely led with friendship and it just changed everything. Um, during this period of time, uh, I got to do a lot of selfish stuff, you know, like the stuff that I had been curious about, um, breathwork, meditation, exploring different modalities, going down to the Amazon, uh, doing ayahuasca in the middle of Taraputo, just mind-opening stuff. Um, and then I also did a little bit of aid work. I went to a refugee camp in Greece, raised $7,000 in 48 hours went back to the orphanage that I had worked at when I was 22 in Cambodia and painted a mural. Um, and I think the most important thing that happened during that time was the most important man in my life died very suddenly of a pulmonary embolism. 
And I, I say this because sometimes our greatest pain becomes our greatest path, um, if we're lucky. And so when my grandpa died, I stopped backpacking and I flew to LA to take care of my grandma and be there with my family. And that was nine months of real painful, gut-wrenching grief and depression. And the way that I got out of it was actually through the support of my guy friends. And so that leads me to this project that I started in the throes of losing all masculine, sorry, male wisdom in my life. You know, my dad had left 10 years before then. My grandpa stepped up in his place. I didn't have a boyfriend and I didn't have a husband. So my guy friends really showed up for me. And we would gather around the campfire and talk about crypto and blockchain and existentialism and philosophy. And I just thought, wow, as I travel the world speaking on stages about hacking human connection, what if I just gathered my best guy friends in every city, made dinner, and we talked about what it means to be a man? And this is pre-Me Too. Like, nobody's talking about this. And I started doing it. And I did the first one in New York. And then two weeks later, I was speaking at Tech Open Air. And I asked for a second slot. I said, I know I'm speaking about hacking human connection, but I just started this new project. Would you be willing to give me one more hour? And this is why I always ask. She said yes. And people waited in line for two hours after that talk. And I was like, whoa, where there's curiosity, there's everything. Like nobody's waited for two hours after a hacking human connection talk. So it got me realizing that men were really hungry to have safe spaces to be heard and to have conversations about unspoken truths in intimate settings with a woman who could create an environment of non-competition, which goes against everything that men have ever been conditioned mm. to believe to be true about four strangers in a room together. So I started doing these dinners around the world. And I did them in Berlin and Tel Aviv and Madrid, uh, um, Sydney and Melbourne, New York, SF, LA. And I decided this is a book. So I transcribe every dinner. And um, each city is a different chapter. And the, the wisdom that is shared is some of the deepest and richest conversation I've ever been privy to. Because none of the men know each other. And I'm pulling them from all different parts of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then I started speaking on stage about my findings as a woman doing men's work. And then men started coming to me, wanting to work with me one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. And I'm not an expert in this. Because I really believe that the answers we seek lie in the questions we're willing to ask. And so I'm a facilitator of asking the questions that you might be too scared to ask yourself. And, um, and it's just the most joyful work because the result of that creates this virtuous cycle of self-awareness to self-love to self-expression. And that's really my goal is to help men love themselves and express themselves. No, How's that? That's great. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, and also the the story of you pulling the the decision out of you to go and and backpack. You did that twice. Yeah. And th that's a very tough decision, but it led to some of your most formative growth. Yeah. And so those are very beautiful. Also, the dichotomies between seeing what was going on in Manhattan uh, for seven years in ad advertising yeah. uh, versus what's happening in other parts of the world in a refugee camp. Yeah. So to be able to actually get into these different worldviews and like fully immerse oneself in them, uh, it leads to a more 
holistic perspective and also uh, uh, to be able to potentially even share that with others and get them more aware of what actually happens. So you use these words, uh, non-competitive environment for men in Mm -hmm. these, in these dinners. Also uh, the word vulnerability is another one I Mm -hmm. feel like with some of my uh, strongest female friends that I can get to become more vulnerable sometimes than with my strongest male friends for some reason. So teach us about what this exactly is, this non-competitive vibe that's there. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, so typically when men walk into the room together, um, there's a sense of natural hierarchical deciphering. They're trying to discern where the power is at, right? Every relationship um, is an exchange of power. And so when men walk into a space, this is going back to caveman times. They've got to understand where are they in the hierarchy. And, you know, according to Jack Donovan, who wrote The Way of Men, uh, man's ability to thrive depends on the small gang, the small gang of men that is in his circle. And so we're constantly changing circles. And what I recognized is when we are in a place of having to prove ourselves, we're not feeling safe. And when we're not feeling safe, we're not being our most sincere version of self. So what I do in my dinners is I say, we're human beings, not human doings. Nobody's allowed to talk about their jobs. Everybody's on an equal playing field. Uh, Our phones are on airplane mode because that way nobody's too important for somebody else. And all of us are giving the gift of presence, which is the greatest gift that we can give ourselves or each other. And so I think by creating specific rules and creating a container of safety, um, that's how we take away that primal conditioning of, I'm walking into this room and I've got to be the best and the smartest and the richest and the most powerful. It's like, no, you just got to be you and bring your powerful stories to the table of how you became you. And that's all. And the beauty is, every single time I do this without fail, we walk in as four strangers and walk out as friends that have gone through a once in a lifetime experience and they always ask to stay in touch you know we think about women as really nurturing and community driven men are seeking that community so much because they've been deprived of it much of their lives because of this competitive breeding and it's very isolating and loneliness is the greatest epidemic facing men um, statistically speaking and there's a reason for that it's because of this competition and so when we think about masculinity, modern masculinity, it's so deeply tied to performance. Mm. And the reason it's tied to performance is because when I ask the question, what are the greatest challenges facing men in Ubers all over the world, I've been doing this for three years, nine times out of 10, the answer is the ability and pressure to provide is the greatest challenge. Because when men don't live up to their own expectations, to their culture's expectations, or to society's expectations of their performance as measured in cash, they go into a vicious spiral of shame. And it could be really subtle or really extreme. And the way that men process those feelings of shame is they anesthetize them because they've been robbed of the agency to feel their full spectrum of emotions systematically by the patriarchy and other systems. But when they don't want to feel pain and shame, often what I found is men turn to vices like alcohol, like drugs, like fast women. 
like anything that will detract from the pain I feel for not being valued in a society that only values me by the performance. That performance is a metric that is measured by cash. And that goes back to tribalism, right? Like when we were cavemen, men survived by bringing home the kill, the animal to feed the village. We don't have that, but now men survive by bringing home the cash. And that's their value contribution. So what I tell women is if you want to make your man feel seen on a level that is euphoric, value him for something other than his performance. And that's a game changer. I love how you tie this into the biological imperative, which is this hierarchy that has been evolving over time and how it's taken it all the way historically back to the tribe and bringing back the, the kill yeah. for, to feed people and now that's turned into the cash everything's performance based these uber rides have become spiritual practices for yes. you we're both massive question askers relentless mm -hmm. curiosity and so with that constant probing for people around the world it's been that there's this pressure nine out of ten just replied to you about this pressure the hierarchical pressures and so to be seen fully as not just for providing cash and the pressures there are for that what else has opened up for the in the conversations because it makes so much sense that there's the, the that you come in you're not talking about work so there's no the hierarchy turns into that heterarchy. You're yeah. just talking to each other about your families, about mm -hmm. your friends, about challenges you Fatherhood, have. Fatherhood, yeah. Teach us about the Yeah, things. yeah. So I just had a men's dinner a few days ago here in SF, and I gathered all fathers. And it was the first fathers-only dinner. And it was super fascinating because it was from 32 all the way to 63-year-old fathers who had kids at different ages. and. I just let them talk about the moment. When did you feel connected to your child? How many men were there? There were five. Five. And yeah. the average size is usually around four. this. Four. four yeah. Four. I've experimented as big as eight, and I've gotten it down to four because I want to give each man the space to use his voice. And if there's one dominating personality, it gets really complicated. And so facilitating four feels good. And then is it one, it's turn-based, so it's everyone's in one conversation. Everyone's in one conversation, yeah. We don't split off into, it's Jeffersonian, um, but it's also deeply interactive, and um, I welcome contrarian opinions, mm -hmm. and we just all have to be loving and encouraging of each other. And you kind of walk through, maybe as the facilitator, of yeah. certain topics that you think would, and then you ask them a question, and then they kind of go, and is that... Yeah, so I have... Um, I have a prep email that before you step in, this is my mission, this is what I'm creating in the world. We get to be visiting professors in each other's lives. This conversation will be transcribed, anonymized, and a chapter in the book. Only share what you feel would add value to the generation reading this. Because 100 years from now, when people ask, who were the men of 2019? I want to elevate the voices of men of high integrity and I consider you to be one of them. And so really it's, um, it's my love letter to men because as a woman who has seen the entire spectrum of interactions with men from super integrous to deeply lacking, I decided I wanted to rewrite my own narrative of how I saw men. 
And in doing so, I'm helping rewrite, hopefully, the narrative of much of the world because in this post-MeToo culture, we have a lot of shaming and blaming of men and that is justified. And at the same time, there needs to be a counterbalance. Elevating the voices of men of high integrity, elevating the everyday heroes is my greatest contribution that I can do to um, equalize this balance. Okay, yes. Now, and now take us to, this is cool because the guys are 32 as dads or yeah. 64 as dads, yeah. so their kids are kind of all over the age range. And yeah. yeah, so this must be an interesting conversation between them. Yeah, yeah. So what was really interesting was all of them agreed that their moment of really getting fatherhood and feeling connected as dads didn't happen when their wives got pregnant, didn't happen when the babies were born, happened when it was the cusp of toddlerhood, happened when the child could laugh and interact and had personality and a response, like a feedback loop. Mm. Um, and there was a little bit, I think, of shame in that because they wanted to feel connected to their kid. But again, what's so beautiful about these dinners is this is illuminating the unspoken truths, the stuff that they haven't even wanted to admit to themselves. And I think it's something that a lot of dads can relate to. Um, and it also creates this uh, divisive divide with the moms because at the same time, you know, so many of my best friends just gave birth they've lost their identity. So there's this massive power shift of women become utilitarian and fully disengage with their sexual beings because they've got an eight pound child that is 100% dependent on them. Men feel like they're losing their wife, losing the identity of what that woman was to them, to this tiny being that they can't even connect to or derive joy from. So now men have lost their place in their own home. Mm. And, and it takes a really open, aware, communicative couple yeah. to make it through that journey. And so we talked a lot about that. You're describing the, the dynamic in a very uh, fresh way for, for me, and it's yeah. really interesting thinking about it. Um, mm -hmm. when, when, when it's this selfishness, selfless, selflessness that starts kicking in of having to give 100% of oneself to, to the child, and then how that affects the dynamic between the couple. Um, and then I really appreciated that moment of awareness for the father of when there's a feedback loop that's yeah. enabled uh, between the child and themselves. And then yeah. the personality starts emerging and it's like, how do I yeah. <laughs> engage with Exactly. That? Yeah. And fatherhood is, is one of the greatest rites of passage that we have as men. Um, and, and as motherhood is for women. And so there was this really great TED talk about how um, across the board, fatherhood has prevented more violence across gang communities than any other single factor. Because when a man recognizes that he has a mission that is bigger than himself, mm -hmm. he goes into warrior protector mode. And so fatherhood is the antidote to violence. There's something that happens to men when they recognize that there is a legacy, a living legacy happening inside of their own home that they up level as men. And it, it changes the way that they treat their women. There is this newfound respect, like she's the mother of my child. That phrase kept coming up in the conversation on um, Monday night. 
and it just was beautiful. And so I really want to do more of these father's dinners because I think men are so fearful of what comes with fatherhood, the losing of the wife, the losing of the identity. But what is gained with fatherhood is a spiritual experience that definitely needs to be celebrated. Yeah, there's a totally this transcendent feeling that comes with something that is a lineage of, of you and of that you have to prioritize that over the, the hierarchical dynamics of workplace environments but yeah. at the same time figuring out how to balance that in to become a better provider as well give the child the best sort of tools and resources yeah. they need um, so is there has that also been something that's that's reoccurring is the is what's the difficulty of past that point of like, okay, well then you maybe get into the adolescent years, how you deal with kids in the adolescent years, how you uh, figure out some of the maybe challenges that arise throughout the, these processes. Yeah, so what I found really interesting was the way that modern men parent is in response to the way that they were parented. So when we talk about breaking the generational wounding, and that cycle only persists if we're unaware of the ways in which our parents, knowingly and unknowingly, traumatized us. Because nobody's parents are gonna come off scot-free, right? We all experience parts of our parents that are a projection of the pain that their parents did. So really, what was so beautiful about this men's dinner was each of the guys came forward and explained, you know, my dad, came from Iran and this was normative in growing up and I will never lay a finger on my child. And I was like, yes, that's what we need. We need men taking a stand to be better humans to their children. And that's what I'm seeing and why I'm so optimistic about the future is conscious parenting is now becoming a normative topic. Um, and I think it's, it's really the most powerful way forward to transform our entire society. Not to pass down the generational trauma, but to decouple it. So I have this um, guided visual story that I do on stage where I say we're all individual nesting dolls. And so from zero to 10 weeks, you're this tiny amorphous blob of cells. No gender is assigned to you. You're the tiniest wooden doll. At 10 weeks, you get your first nesting doll, and that's anatomical conditioning. So hormones start racing through your body, testosterone making your penis, um, estrogen making the beginnings of your vulva, and then at nine months when you're born, that's the second nesting doll, and that's your familial conditioning. So how did your family treat your gender will depend on how their families treated their gender. The next nesting doll is your cultural conditioning. So that's what kind of culture were you raised in? Were you raised in a culture where um, there was a lot of misogyny, uh, a lot of machoism? Was it an immigrant culture? Was it Latino, black? All of those nuances make a huge difference. The next nesting doll is societal. And that societal conditioning deeply thinks about patriarchal systems, um, deeply thinks about you know societies like China and India where the value of a woman's gender is not high and then the last nesting doll is your own ideology and that is a conglomeration of all of the experiences that you have had with the opposite sex including and not limited to sexual trauma um, great joys ex-boyfriends ex-girlfriends and attachment theory prevailing the relationship that you've had with your opposite sex parent so that's one person that's one nesting doll 
And when you walk down the street, we're all nesting dolls. And so the only way that I see forward is to decouple all of the nesting dolls one layer at a time and create a level of self-awareness that writes a truer narrative than the one that you have been swimming in your whole life. So that's where you gotta get curious and question everything you've ever known to be true. Yeah, the nesting dolls is a really good way to Thank put it. You. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> I so thought good. culturally yeah, you'd yeah. appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and just in, in when we whenever we talk to uh, especially uh, neuroscientists, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, just especially ones that are studying the for, early formative years yeah. um, and even like time in the womb. Le there's a lot of formation, the dolls that are ne these yeah. nested times. So that yeah. to, to be able to know how to, to peel those away, like dissect into them, take this old code that can sometimes be so dramatic or yeah. all these issues and sort of you know write yourself uh, some code updates that can maybe yeah. make yourself feel like the divine being that that we are yeah. and that that's that's this makes sense that it's facilitated by these small intimate yeah. settings where there's a high degree of vulnerability the hierarchy is not being prioritized where phones are, are to offer on airplane yeah. mode I'm trying to create a positively disruptive experience so anything that is disruptive to the norm and positively adds to your life is what I'm all about yeah yeah I'm likewise <laughs> I, yeah, disruptive to the norm and positively adds to your life is so critical uh, there's a lot of uh, this sort of path that's already been being walked down by the, the old code is making the path mm -hmm. really easily accessible for for most people to file into yeah. uh, but the new code these new paths the paths towards spiritual divinity towards unity towards global cohesion with pachamama with our mother earth talking about raising children and the differences mm -hmm. that we feel when we raise them around around the world and these things are the ones that I think by doing the salons that you're doing are catalyzing the most, some of the most pressing conversations that, yeah. that we need to have. Yeah. I, I love learning about this from you and it feels as though that uh, I, I have so many more questions. Like what is the difference between doing one with fathers mm. and doing one with like 25, 30 year old men yeah. that, are, yeah, that aren't fathers yet and yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've never just done young guys. So I try to have great age differences. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I try to have a member of the queer community represented in every dinner. Okay. Uh, there wasn't a member of the queer community represented in this father's dinner. Um, and that was a shame because I think the more diverse my, my group, the deeper breadth and depth of insights shared. So, Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. So everything... Yeah from age from age to sexual orientation to ethnicity i've had i've had some some tough conversations about race um and and i also have learned as a facilitator that you've got to create a safe space first above all and what's really cool is when you do that you know there were some questions that the straight men had towards the the bisexual and gay men in the dinners uh, and this happens every single time because how often do straight men 
get to ask questions. And so a big part of my dinner is in the prep work, I send the seven questions that I universally ask all over the world. And those are my control variable questions. What does it mean to be a man today? What are the greatest challenges facing men? Um, what parts of masculinity do you celebrate? What parts of masculinity feel archaic at best and mm -hmm. devastating at worst? Is gender a social construct? These are questions that are meant to get our minds marinating so that when they walk in, they know exactly where we're going and we go deep. That's great. It's a great marination. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And then I save the spot for their question and I say, you have a unique opportunity to ask any question that comes to mind. And what I find is the wisdom comes from the questions the men ask mm. because the answers we seek lie in the questions we're brave enough to ask mm -hmm. aloud. Mm -hmm. And so one of one of the best questions I've ever had asked in my dinners, and this is a, a core part of my research, one of my guy friends said, have any of you ever felt like less of a man in the presence of another man? And this was one of the earlier dinners that I did. And that question just illuminated so much about what is unspoken about men. And when people ask me, what are you learning about men? I think I'm learning how deeply similar we are. My overarching thesis is, yes, we are biologically different. We have different hormones, but we are cosmically the same and we share the same heart. We share the same insecurities. We share the same pain points around value. We share the same uh, hurt over objectification. Uh, you know, the, it changes what we get objectified over. Women, beauty and body, men in sweeping generalizations, ability to provide and finance, but we are so much more similar than we are different. And when I read books to supplement my primary, search, uh, primary research, like King Warrior Magician Lover, which is a cult classic in masculine studies, I see myself in every single one of these archetypes. And so it's fascinating to me that we have books that are seen through the lens of, oh, this is the four archetypes for men by men. I'm like, wait a second, I've been a king, I've been a warrior, I've been a magician, and I've been a lover, and I'm a woman. So it brings me back to my thesis that we are bodies of water walking in skins, and I happen to be in the skin of a woman, and you happen to be in the skin of a man. And because of that conditioning and nesting dolls, the world has created narratives for us. But if we go back and back and back and back, to pre-10 weeks, to inception, mm -hmm. we were genderless beings. Mm -hmm. And so I challenge people to be genderless. I challenge people to not use their gender to excuse or promote anything, just to be human. And I've challenged myself. I used to say I'm a woman doing men's work. I don't say that anymore. I'm just a human. Naval Ravikant, one of my guy friends, said this uh, on a podcast. He said, uh, I try to strip away every identity. Yeah. And it was, yes. I thought about that and I was like, our identities are really convenient narratives. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's a convenient narrative that we get to use to play the immigrant card, to play the woman card. I don't want to do that game anymore. You're you friends know. with Naval Ravikant? <laughs> <laughs> he, he owes Ron money. <laughs> he, he owes me money. Yeah, we, um, we, had, we had some really deep conversations around the kitchen uh, for a week, and, and those are some of the conversations I'll remember for the rest of my life. So. 
Oh my goodness. Okay, this I worked with him a few years ago. That's why I I'm sorry. This, 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 this stripping away of identities is also something that is so critical as to how culture will uh, just ident identity, 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 identity. It's always um, trying to like label something to make like reduce it to something yeah. that's easier to understand. Are you a liberal? Are you a conservative? Right. That's like the most right. most popular one. Right. Are you a man or a woman? Mm -hmm. Are you a which religion do you subscribe yeah. to? I mean, it's like it's, very it's like subscriptions to all these yeah. different services. Yeah. But like really, when you look at what happens inside of the womb when the first cells are starting to form, I mean, these are divine human yes. cells yes. and that the viewing it that way really inspires that unity that with yeah. that we are these water bodies yeah. and that with this this earth suit skin uh, that yeah, 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 yeah there's, there's a lot of spirituality that we yeah. should dive into in a little bit i have an interesting question to ask you because this is probably um on on behalf of some of the uh, higher, the hierarchical side of the of the conversation. Um, one could potentially say that the the amount of influence that one has over the trajectory of civilization is could but it could potentially be their place on a hierarchy. Yeah. And so when someone that's kind of just like chilling in like a 10,000 person city in the middle of Nebraska is kind of like doesn't really have as much of a say uh, over society as one of the heads of the um, the companies that control 2 billion human perception every single day across their internet companies. Yeah. So how do you how do you have that coincide and balance into the the conversations that, that you have around these topics? Yeah, it's a really great point. And um, when I'm curating these dinners, sometimes the men that attend are deeply powerful. And I mix them with men that are deeply creative um, or everyday humans. Um, and the way that I balance it is by putting them in the same room together so that they understand that they are actually experiencing life through the same lens and their desire is the only thing that changes it. One has the desire to impact and influence on a million scale and one has the desire to impact and influence within his community. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's just an understanding of what community are you associating with. You could associate with your village or you could associate with your world. And so that's, that's the only difference. They're equally valuable. Um, just their amount of power that they desire is what changes how big or small their community that they get to influence is. Okay, let's, let's, hit, let's stay on that a little longer. Just the different colors on a color wheel is another yeah. way to put it, right? Maybe the, like we can use hair colors here. Purple may be this, you know, millions of scale thing and then maybe red is just a village yeah. thing. It influence over the trajectory of yeah. only five people in your community or maybe millions or billions in the world. A civilization that's running in its state of just perpetual day-to-day -day economic growth is it really you use the word kind of like these are equal right colors yeah. on the color wheel mm -hmm. 
red and purple in this sense. But in this, in this sense, purple coming up with an innovation in code that gets to billions of people can make it so that you could maybe tackle one of the challenges that could be an existential risk to the whole entire planet in the sure. first place. So can is there then a one of these colors is potentially more so it, it goes back to unleashing that genius that you're born with. And you can only create as much impact in the world as you are aware of and you are able to believe in yourself to be a potential solution to that problem. So you can't artificially force someone who's in the red who believes that the highest version of himself is being a great dad in his village because that's that's as big as he sees himself. That's as much contribution as he sees. And that devoted father is changing the next generation for his kids. That guy would lose himself in the purple color because he wouldn't be able to step up and believe in himself to a place where he's dealing with global problem solving. And if a man is attacking a problem that he doesn't feel, or woman, um, that he doesn't feel he genuinely can add value to, it's a lost cause. So I think we need both. We, we are all solving problems in the world, and as long as we're solving problems, there's trillions of problems to be solved. Um, we need everybody to be all hands on deck, but only where they feel their highest contribution. We can't force contribution. Mm -hmm. So then let's 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 move into how when you when you pair together someone that may be you know in the in the millions of the color purple of like of influencing the trajectory of people's lives versus someone that is just you know maybe influencing a couple people's lives their families' lives that type of thing, and then you remove all of that the you remove the 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 economic influences that these people have and you yeah. and the phones are on they're promote they're talking is what the what is the dynamic that's kind of created from their experience do you ever hear of how they kind of find the magic in the mundane uh yeah, when they talk about their love, when they talk about women, when they talk, or, or their partners, when they talk about their kids, there is a deep appreciation of the simple pleasures in life. Regardless of how big the scale of problems you're trying to tackle, there is that solidarity over what matters. And what matters at the end of the day is a man coming home to a place where he feels valued and loved and appreciated, um, where he feels like he can take off the suit that he's been tackling problems with all day and just be. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and those men always find commonalities around the just being, not doing. Because this is something, yeah. as a writer, I'm really frustrated about. We have the most nuanced topic, or at least one of them, gender. And as a writer, I only have two words to explain it, masculine and feminine. But because of the way that these words have been misused, the brain instantly conflates feminine with female and masculine with male. And no matter how accurate I'm trying to explain something, I know that there's always a risk that my audience won't hear it. Not because they're not smart or they want to, but because they've been conditioned. So what I'm challenging myself to do is 
positive disruptive vernacular. I'm really trying to stop using feminine and masculine mm. and just only go with what I feel is the two states of being of all humans universally. We are in a state of being yeah, where we feel or we are in a state of doing where we create. Yeah, yeah. And it is nor feminine nor masculine. Can within this being and doing, it seems as though when you're maybe more so in a in, in, a, in a village that you're maybe in a state of being more often. Mm -hmm. When you're in a Silicon Valley, you're in a place of doing more often. Yeah. And it seems to be quite out of balance mm -hmm. in potentially maybe even both of those locations. But this is what one of the one of the great questions is, why are we not in a perpetual state of just being mm -hmm. on the rock? Why do we need to be in a state of constantly doing on the rock? Well, because the economy needs to grow and there need to be so many problems to be tackled and we need to electrify and connect everything via the Internet of Things and get to Mars and the moon. And it, yeah. So uh, how, do you, how, how do you live with that narrative of the yeah. singularity with the narrative of just be? I lean toward the just be. I really think that if we could sit in the stillness of the cave of our own minds, if we could live in a state of meditative gratitude, universally the world would be a calmer, more joyful, less violent place. Because if you can connect to yourself, first and foremost, you can then connect to your fellow human. And that trickles down from the highest of leadership all the way down to the smallest nuclear family unit. Um, I think that it's no surprise that uh, SF and a few of these big metropolitan cities are having the highest upticks in adoption of meditation and Eastern philosophies. You know, when Esalen started in 1962 and they brought Eastern practice to the West, they were really not seen as uh, scholarly or academic or um, they weren't validated for their vision. And it wasn't until Alan Watts came and taught and studied there and Maslow wrote The Hierarchy of Needs that people started recognizing the importance of world philosophies being woven into the tapestry of American thought leader. Um, and so now we know that the president meditates. We know that the greatest leaders in the world, Ray Dalio, meditates 20 minutes every morning and every afternoon. Um, Tim Ferriss, like the, the names go on and, and it's, it's so important now more than ever to create the being state in micro moments every day because just the practice of gratitude mm -hmm. neurologically rewires yeah. the brain. Um, so I'm a really big proponent. I think the doing is, is always going to be there. The being is the personal quest to enjoy the doing. Mm, mm, yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Got a one-liner. <laughs> Sometimes I say something, I'm like, I should write that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well now we have it on video, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for evoking this, that out of me. Yeah, this is what we do. We help the, sh the shining, <laughs> the shining. So I love that. Okay, so we practice the state of the being to, to make it so that the journey of what we do with the doing yeah. is just extremely transcendent and fulfilling yeah. beyond words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The and doing is the manifestation of emotional desire meets action. 
You see something, you desire it, you have a vision for creating it. And then when you execute it, when you give birth to it, there is a feeling of pride that you were able to do so. There is a feeling of contribution that what you have created is generative for your community, for your society, for humanity. That's why the doing matters. But until you get to a place of sincere being, anything that you try to do is feeding from the pains and the voids of unworked through past pain. Mm -hmm. So the being is the process of sitting still with the beasts of the mind yeah. and allowing yourself to see pain as your greatest professor. I would not be on this quest for masculinity if my dad wasn't my best friend and left when I was 21 and my grandpa died two years ago. I think our greatest pain births our greatest purpose. Yeah. And we're all yeah. in pain. So just find a way to transmute that and you're gonna be on a path that's much more rewarding than sitting solely in the pain. I can sit with the pain and I can see it as that college professor that just wouldn't let me off the hook. But that college professor taught me more than any other class did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Pain is one of the greatest professors on the other side of the greatest traumas and, and yeah. then walls of adversity are our greatest treasures. Mm -hmm. Yes, I like those a lot. And okay, I, I want to I see some of your thoughts about this because okay. this is... Uh, this is kind of what we're what we're heading to. As much mm -hmm. as being is such a critical thing to embody, like you said, the metropolises of the world are embodying these Eastern spiritual practices of meditation and the beautiful transcendent experiences of unity and, and ego death and whatnot that we can experience from that oneness. While we are also somehow in these metropolises building the artificial intelligence agents, we're building the virtual realities, we're building the synthetic biologies and neurotechnologies, we're building the connecting of, to that singularity that we're heading yeah. to. So, so what, what, do you, what do you, how do you coincide again this, that we're moving into the, this crazy exponential technology age with the, with the being? I think we're running away from ourselves in certain ways. We're not living in the present, we're building the future. That's my first reaction. Um, my second is there's something that is deeply unfulfilling about the modern that is creating a sensationalism of futurism. Interesting. And so if you're not satisfied with where you're at, if you're not satisfied with where humanity's at, you're pouring all of your resources into architecting the future. Yeah. Um, and my only, my only thought on that is, is, is this an equitable place where both men and women are coming together to create the future? Because from my understanding, it's not. And when I asked uh, at Davos, I was asking uh, a panelist who was speaking about AI. It's like, so if you imagine that AI has a gender, what would it be? And he laughed at me and he's like, it's a man, obviously. It's built by men. And that just made my heart sink because I was like, this thing that is happening, that is irrefutably happening, AI, is being built by 90% men with very little uh, female perspective. So we have one homogenous opinion architecting the future. And that is terrifying because that undoes all of the work that I'm personally on a mission to do, which is build bridges, joining the genders. And so we've gotta be really careful 
about how we build the future, inclusive of not just gender, but um, diversity. And gender isn't man versus woman. You know, the, the Gen Zs that are coming up, when they hear us say the word gay, that's so outdated and archaic because they consider themselves fluid. They're not thinking, am I gay, am I straight? They're thinking, I am a human being and who I love is not dependent on their genitalia. And that's the kind of progressive thinking that we really need to get on board with and give equal opportunity to every different socioeconomic background who wants to unleash their genius. Because otherwise we're gonna have AI built by white men. And that's the direction it's going in. And that's pretty terrifying. Okay, so when 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 we look at when we look at what's happening in the existing state of code that we're in right now, it in so many ways has evolved with so many hiccups and errors in some of the code that we're like, we can't fix this. There's too much stuff going on in the complexity. We're just going to focus on building the new code. We're going to architect the new stuff and we're going to do, 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 do all the time. Do, 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 do so that we can obsolete the old problems with when nine out of 10, if that's the case are that are building the the artificial intelligence agents that are, will eventually become the ones that create the super intelligences that are white men that the bridges that you're building the all the all the things that you listed about these millennials and the generation z and even the generation that comes after the generation z the we don't really fully comprehend the what evolution is is on its path of doing to the yeah. brain and the heart and yeah. the humans on the rock. It's it's very difficult to be able to see something like a fluidity in the way that people treat themselves as just human and who they love and also of the way that uh, whatever it means to have tendencies to want to be, no, actually, I don't want to do social emotional skills. I just want to learn how to compute. Like that's all someone wants to do. That that these are just these are these are what are you know they're different they're idiosyncratic just differences and that we to be able to treat it that way as something that we're still trying to comprehend as part of evolution could be better for us how do you how do you reconcile how do you actually uh change you know you're doing that right now with what you're doing with the narrative of 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 the of the men's dinners and as well as these and the the salon to be able to make the bridges is that is that the, the the what are the best strategies that we have for for being able to make the the update in code towards that unity? yeah i think it's for every male futurist that is an ai look at your circle of friends and pull up uh, a person of a different background race and gender with you mentor them if i was smart enough to go into ai i would um but I'm doing this from the storytelling perspective where I feel I can tap into my unique gifts. So if you're a, a female scientist and you don't feel like you have access to the same opportunities, um, if you're coming from a different race, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, fight to be part of the future. And if you're already there and you're sitting comfortably in your privilege as a man, as a white man, then look at the ownness that you have to create not a homogenized version of the future, but an accurate one. And, 
And that's where the personal accountability comes in. Um, and so I ask all of us to see each other as brothers and sisters in the other. How would you treat your sister who was up and coming? How would you treat your cousin from a different family? That's what the global family is waiting for, is for us to just drop our excuses, drop the pain points and say, we're here at the most critical time in history. Enough with the ego, enough with the identities and, and the war between the genders. The only war that we're gonna be fighting is within ourselves if we don't get our shit together and, and coalesce and join forces on activating all of our collective genius. There are so, I was in crypto and blockchain for years and I did it as a hobby and I started this Facebook group called Lovecoin, 3,000 people joined and suddenly I felt a responsibility to help other women get into this field because I would go to conferences like Davos and I would see stage after stage, six men on a panel and I was like, You've got to be fucking kidding me because I know personally at least 15 brilliant women that could knock your pants off right now, but none of them are given opportunities. And so enough with that. Like if you're a man on a six man panel, get off the panel because when you're on that panel, everyone looking is realizing that you are feeding into the archaic notions of the past instead of being a champion of the progress needed to shape the future. Yeah, you had a really great action point there is, you know, we are who we surround ourselves with. To, so to be able to, um, to do things like uplift the, those yeah. in the lower uh, socioeconomic statuses or to, to, to take in people into our social circles that are of different um, places of the world than we are. These yeah. are very, very important things to do. Yeah, we, yeah, we just we just finished up. Yeah, some of the interviews in Cambridge where that was happening, and it was like really awakening. And it was like, yeah. fuck, like this is what happens when you take the time to immerse yourself into what it's like growing up in a different part of the world. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's something as simple as like open your couch to couch surfing. Allow immigrants to sleep on your couch. Allow, go out to dinner with people that aren't in your social sphere. You know, we kind of float in this very privileged 1% intellectual elite. Mm -hmm. And so even my dinner salons are a reflection of that. As much as I try to pull men in from different backgrounds, they're aware and thinking that is a privilege. Maslow's hierarchy of needs doesn't give you that when you're in a refugee camp yeah. just trying to stay alive. So. So to those that have privilege, and I consider privilege anything beyond survival, we're all deeply privileged. It's intersectional privilege uh, that's really at, at the core of it. We have a responsibility, and uh, acting upon that responsibility is the highest honor that you can pay forward for the privilege that you have. So it's almost like an IOU. Yeah, it's yeah. like, hey, I won the lottery, I got to leave the Soviet Union and become a businesswoman in America. I got to be born to a mother who at 26 years old spearheaded our exit from a country that wasn't gonna let me actualize my highest potential. I was so deeply loved and nurtured and it didn't matter how little money we had in America, we had all the opportunities. Yeah. And so if we're living in a place like America or any country in the world for that matter, and you are fed, happy, and loved, 
just get curious about what you can do today to be a steward for positive evolution. And that's where talking to strangers has become a spiritual practice. Because we're, we're not living in this world of extremes where it's like, I either am a martyr and become Mother Teresa or nothing. It's like, there are micro moments of humanity in your Uber, with your Starbucks barista, even uh, in your leadership style. Like, pull aside the intern. One of the greatest bosses I ever had pulled my desk into his suite. The president of this company, Ignition, Mikey Hersom, love that man till the day I die. He saw me as a 19-year-old precocious kid. He believed in me, and he treated me as his right-hand man. And because of that, I felt capable of things that people twice my age weren't doing. Mm -hmm. And I was 19 years old traveling the world for clean water to Africa on a 65-day world relay. And I got to experience some of the highest highs of my career at 19 because there was somebody who opened the door and believed in me and gave me a responsibility to run with. That is how we change the system. Yeah, yeah. Very well said and synthesized. This is this is this has been so such a powerful episode and conversation. I want to ask you a couple questions on, on the way out. I love that you said synthesized. Yeah, it's <laughs> the nerdiest. Always, always, best compliment. Always on that synthesis. Yeah. What Positive can, feedback loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what can we do to help with uh, basic physiological needs across the world? The full actualization, the new codes. The first question is, are we alone in the cosmos? To think that we are alone in the cosmos is, is to be deeply unaware of our smallness and insignificance. We are but one trillionth of all the possibilities that live within the cosmos. So we are very much in good company, company that we may never see or feel, um, but we are definitely not alone in my personal opinion. And there's something deeply comforting about that. Next question is, are we in a simulation? Uh, I believe we're in a created simulation on a macro and micro level. The simulation exists within us because we are living out a simulation that we actively, through our wounding and through our desire, these two polarities, push us and pull us into actions. Those actions create memories. Those memories create character. That's our internal simulation. We then feed into the collective simulation um, and play roles in each other's lives. And then there's, beyond the collective, there's the ephemeral, there's the astral plane simulation. So I think that, yeah, it's a nesting doll of simulations. <laughs> <laughs> and our last question is, what is the most beautiful thing in the world? Mm. Love. Love. I think the conversation about a father's love uh, was deeply touching this week, and that feels top of mind. I think love is the most illogical and powerful force on earth. I think the entire point of life is love. We do nothing meaningful without love. Um, so love is, is the most beautiful thing we could ever be a part of or hope to create. We love you very much. <laughs> we love you very Thank much. Thank you for this. This Thank was you. wonderful. <laughs>
for such a great conversation. I'm, yeah, I'm so yeah. grateful. Likewise, yeah. likewise. <laughs> extremely grateful for you. Extremely grateful for Ron. Thank you so much for producing and directing, Ron. We love you very much. Also, I want to say that when Brave New Men actually ends up coming out, we can have you back. We can actually yes. we can unpack the stories, the anonymized stories, yes, yes in there, and we can un unpack those in greater detail. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. So let's do that for another part, part two. Huge shout out to everyone else for watching and tuning in. We greatly appreciate you. We would love, love, love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Let us know. Also, check out the links below to Vika's work, bravenewmen.com, also her LinkedIn and Instagram links are below. Go and check those out. Have more conversations with your friends, your family, your coworkers online on social media about the topics that we talked about in the show. Go and chat more about it, share these conversations more. And support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations around the world that you believe in. Maybe create your own men's salons. Create your own dinners around these conversations. Support Vika, our links are below. Support Simulation, our links are below. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Update the old codes to the new codes. We love you very much. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. Peace.